Our first message this afternoon is from Mr. Curtis Whiteley. His message is entitled, The Seat of Humility. Curtis. Thank you very much, Ron. Well, good afternoon. It's uh, wonderful uh, to see everyone on a very hot uh, Sabbath day. Uh, the heat is, summer's finally here. In the past few weeks, seems like we had a kind of a nice, uh, mild summer until uh, this last couple of weeks. Well, the title of my message today, as you have already seen, it's already been mentioned by Ron, was, is The Seat of Humility. The Seat of Humility. And as you can imagine, uh, with that word being in my title, that is pretty much the topic that we're going to talk about today, is humility. When I was on my way to church today, I was trying to figure out, I usually prepare my introduction last, um, and I was having a tough time how to introduce this topic because we're going to kind of go to some different areas today and look at some things and, and just discuss them. But I just kind of did a cursory uh, search on the internet on my phone for the definition of humility in the English language. And I had kind of a Google version of a dictionary. And the dictionary gave me the definition of humility as a modest or low view of one's own importance. Now, I want to be clear, uh, talking about humility today, I, I, I want to, you know, just note that I'm, I'm talking about it in a, in a healthy sense. I'm not saying that we need to walk around, you know, thinking horrible things about ourselves. Uh, you know, obviously, that's not what my goal is. But I was thinking about humility and preparing this message, the scriptures we're going to get to in a few minutes, and I was just thinking about how much this is a topic. Uh, the opposite of humility is pride. You know, people who are boastful, uh, who have a very high view, or at least they try to pretend that they have a very high view of themselves. And I thought about one of my favorite scriptures of the entire Bible, and that is in Micah, the uh, sixth chapter, verse eight. Many of you probably would put this as one of your favorites. There's just something to this passage. There's a simplicity to it, but there's also just so much depth that you can get out of it. It says, he has shown you, O man, and breaking into context, obviously, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And so much of the message of the entire spectrum of Scripture is based around these three things. Humility. Seeking mercy and seeking justice. Not only that, but I was also thinking about, and Numbers, that you don't have to turn there, but just you've all have read the scripture where Numbers, the 12th chapter, verse 3, mentions that Moses was the most humble man on the entire, or you know, ever lived, basically on the entire earth. And what's ironic about that is that when we look at one of the reasons why, or the reason why in which Moses was not allowed to enter into the promised land, one of the reasons was a problem of humility. As he struck that rock, and he essentially, it seems kind of strange to us that such something that seems kind of small, but there was something about that situation where he took credit for him and Aaron on, on providing that water to the people. And it prevented him from entering into the promised land. The leader of the nation of Israel through God. 
And that got me thinking. I mean, here the Bible talks about the most humble man on earth even stumbling sometimes in this area of humility. And this says to me that this is a very big issue with human nature. Now, I know personally that humility is something that I have struggled with. I think all of us have struggled with being humble, especially when it comes to things that are very important to us. Now, if you were to say to me, or if I was to go out and play golf with one of you guys, or one of you women here, and I didn't do very well, I probably wouldn't care much about that. It's, it's really not something that's real important to me. But if it was something else that was really important to me and I didn't fare very well, then it would be tough for me to be, you know, a good loser or uh, to, to, to be humble. It would be very humbling to me. It would be something that I greatly cared about. So with that being said, let's just go ahead and get to our primary passage today, Luke, the 14th chapter. Again, we're breaking into context. I'm going to kind of give you some background information on what was going on here in Luke, the 14th chapter. But just as or before I start reading these passages, I just want to kind of let you know what was happening. Jesus had been invited to a banquet, some sort of dinner. He was a guest by a religious leader, one of the leaders of the Pharisees. And in verse 7 it says, So he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, When you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, Give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself, himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And just again, giving you some more background information. Jesus has been invited to this meal. It was a Sabbath meal. Uh, and possibly one of the motivations for inviting Jesus to this meal was to trap him, to maybe get some sort of theological dialogue going on so they could catch him in some sort of you know, uh, incorrect uh, theological doctrine or something like that. Because verse 1, if you were to go back, it says that these men watched him closely. Now, I spoke on this before and talking on other messages, but in the ancient Near East, we know that sitting down and having a meal with an individual uh, was something a little bit more than maybe it is today. It was something of an occasion of great intimate fellowship, especially since this was a Sabbath day. The, some uh, historical sources say that sometimes there was actually uh, a topic or th it would be prevalent for there to be some sort of uh, discussion about the Scriptures. We know that we can look at Genesis, the 19th chapter. Uh, we look at Lot when he invites the angels to come in. Uh, one of the reasons that was so important and significant was because when you invited someone into your house, not only are you the host... Basically extending hospitality, but you're also extending protection. So basically, what we see here in the ancient Middle East, the ancient Near East, is 
meals being taken place and it had a little bit more of a meaning for them as it just does today. Obviously it has some similar meaning today because a lot of times sitting down to have a meal with each other is about fellowship. But it was something a little bit more visible in this day and age, especially when you sat down and ate with somebody that was of lower status than you were. Now at these meals, the way it would work usually is that at the head, the head couch basically, it would be almost like a U-shape, would be the host. And everyone who was the closest to the host would be in the high position, in the high seat. Now, I'm not 100% sure. I've tried to do some research on something. I saw some contradicting uh, sources or things out there about this. Uh, some of them say some of the same things. Some of them uh, uh, kind of veer off and say some other things that are a little bit different. But the way it was basically set was that sometimes these people who would come together at these meals, they would almost like jockey for like the high seat. Someone, you know, they were all kind of somewhat equal status. They would all like kind of like almost strategize how they could get to like the, the closest seat, the highest seat. And I'm not really sure what this would look like. I don't know if this was a matter of, hey, uh, uh, here's the high seat right here, and you're, you look at the guy in front of you and say, hey, I think uh, so-and-so wants to talk to you about Isaiah over there, and he walks over there, and you, you know, you know kind of get next in line, kind of one of those, if you ever saw the movie Beetlejuice at the very end when he gets his head shrunk, that's exactly what he does. Uh, but anyways, that's neither here or there. Uh, but the message is really clear of what Jesus is trying to say, getting back to my point. He says essentially, look, we can either choose to humble ourselves or we can be humbled by someone else. And in this case, it would be a public humbleness. Very practical advice. Now, something else I want to be clear about is that do not take this, and I don't think anyone would, hopefully, do not take this that Jesus is saying, seek mediocrity in this world. You know, don't go for the high things. Don't go and try to do things like, you know, go for those really small seats. You know, you know. aim low. Je Jesus isn't saying aim low. Jesus is giving basically a great example, a demonstration on how the way things work in this human element that we live in is not the way they work in God's realm. And we've seen this with other examples time after time. Okay, so basically Jesus is almost quoting, and if you go to Proverbs 25th chapter, I think Brian's going to put that up there. He's almost verbatim quoting a passage out of the Proverbs where it says, Do not exalt yourself in the presence of the king, and do not stand in the place of the great. For it is better that he say to you, Come up here, than that you should be put lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen. Now, I've also already kind of went over that possible scenario about, you know, what that might look like. But, I mean, can we just imagine what Jesus, I mean, obviously Jesus uh, was at this dinner. Uh, we know the uh, knowledge that Jesus had on the scriptures. We know the knowledge and the, the, the power that exhumed from Jesus from having the spirit without measure. Can we imagine what Jesus was probably thinking? I mean, previously, if we read this story, he's invited, and then there's this man with what's known as dropsy. It's a type of disease, and he heals him, and that's an issue right there in and of itself because it's on the Sabbath day, and there's a discussion about, you know, on Jesus' part, whether or not it's right or wrong to heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus is probably sitting back, and he's observing all of these 
people. And we don't know exactly what Jesus saw. We can maybe get a glimpse of it when we read some historical sources of what these meals were like. But I imagine personally, and trying to ring my little bell, that Jesus is probably like watching these individuals and understand, you know, maybe some of those cunning, you know, strategies that are being used. He's probably thinking, who are you trying to think you're fooling? I mean, I know exactly what you're trying to do. You're trying to get up there in that high seat right there. And that's what's promoted or prompted him to say these things. And that leads us to the question of, well, where did Jesus sit at this meal? I mean, here you have the king of Israel. Whether or not they want to admit it or not, he is the king of Israel. And he's talking in a parable about not seeking the honorable seat. And everyone else in the room, or at least a great majority, probably was you know, doing the, the, the normal thing and trying to get to the highest seat they possibly could. I bet it was really fitting, and for some reason in my mind, I just have a feeling that Jesus, and I could be wrong, we'll find out at some point, ended up sitting in the lowest seat in that entire dining hall, which would be very fitting if we were to go to Philippians, the second chapter, verse 4 through 11, which we've read before, Philippians, the fourth chapter, or second chapter, verses 4 through 11. It says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. And therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. And of course, I'm not going to get into that passage and, 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 and really uh, uh, trying to examine it because it's extremely impactful. But essentially, we see and we understand the background of Jesus, the basically prime example we have of what humility is all about. And taking the position of a human and not even thinking twice of it when we look at where he came from in his pre-existent state. So, as I mentioned in the introduction, this is an issue in human nature. You know, always trying to get that edge. You know, always trying to get that honorable seat, which isn't bad, but the way in which we go about it seems like right here. Jesus isn't saying, as we saw when he mentions this parable, He's saying, you're going about it all wrong. Gave us kind of a, a format, an example of how to be humble. And basically, in God's realm, those who are humble are going to be exalted, and those who exalt themselves are going to be the ones who are humbled. But we can just think about this in our life. I mean, we, you turn on the news, and you hear so many different things about people, whether it be in business, whether it be in sports, you know, cheating, trying to do things to get an edge. You know, we can look at with the Wall Street scandals that have went on, you know, just this last year with what was called Deflate Gate, if you've ever heard of that, with the New England Patriots and, and the, the smallest little thing of trying to deflate footballs just enough to give them an edge uh, when it came to playing football. And so we see, basically, that this is everywhere in life people trying to get an edge, people trying to get that metaphorical 
honorable seat in the wrong way. And the thing is, is that I think that sometimes we forget that it's not just in the world that this happens, but it can happen right here in the church. We have our own church history in the church of God. And I'm sure many of people here that are present can think of examples of individuals throughout the history of, of this church, not this specific church building, but I'm talking about, you can go back to you know, the Church of God International, the Worldwide Church of God, you can look at other different church denominations, and we can see that this is something when people get in positions of power, there's a tendency, uh, it, you know, becoming a Christian, you do not lose that human nature to try to, in a human and carnal way, seek these positions, these high honorable seats. And who is it to impress? Is it to impress God? Or is it to impress our fellow man? I think the problem is, is that sometimes people, us, maybe we can think of examples in our lives, that somewhere along the lines, and we can even think about these Pharisees, you know, we don't want to assume that these Pharisees, that they just were, you know, horrible people, but there was just this tendency, somehow it grew somewhere, where it was more about getting places of honor and about impressing men, impressing their fellow men, their fellow countrymen, than it was in impressing God. And I think sometimes when we live in a life so long where that is our goal, our goal is to get the higher spot, the higher spot, the higher spot. I think some, sometimes subconsciously we start convincing ourselves that not only is it the men that are impressed that we're with, and when I say men, I mean humankind, women and men, but also God's impressed. So let's look at an example of people trying to exalt themselves and being humble. Let's go to Matthew, the 18th chapter. And we've all read this passage before. Matthew, the 18th chapter, and I'll give you some context here. Matthew's version or Matthew's account does not show this, uh, but there was a problem going on. Uh, there was a dispute among the disciples about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And in Matthew, the 18th chapter, picking up in verse 1, it says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself, himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Here's another example of pride being a big problem, even among the disciples of Jesus. Here you have the, the disciples of Jesus. What are they doing? They're seeking the highest seats of honor in the kingdom and going about it in a similar fashion as their Pharisaic contemporaries in the same way. And the context is very clear that Jesus is dealing with pride. He's dealing with an issue of humility. Uh, <clears throat> But what is interesting is how Jesus responds to this. Okay, how does Jesus, what example does Jesus give in showing them or demonstrating, you know, the attitude they ought to have? It's the example of children. Children was the illustration that Jesus used for his illustration of humility. Now this might have been a little shocking in the ancient Near East. Again, kind of looking at more background information, we have to always understand that sometimes the way they would interpret or, 
or receive something might be just a little different than our own. But basically, in the ancient Near East, children were regarded as inferior as adults, as kind of how they are now, but in a much more intense way. Uh, our looking at, you know, we have a social hierarchy in our society. But in some of these ancient societies, the social hierarchy was a lot more rigid. Is a lot more uh, inflexible. I mean, that would probably be the best term to put it. In other words, if you were born a slave or if you were born in this social uh, stratosphere, it was very difficult to elevate yourself out of that social stratosphere, more difficult than it is today in this age. But we know that we can see an illustration just a few chapters later. We know that Jesus had some children trying to come to him and basically what we see is, is what? The disciples trying to draw the, the children away, basically. And Jesus says, no. Unless one of you receives the kingdom as a child, you don't have a part in it. And that is basically the command that we are given. Now, what are children like? We have to ask that question. I mean, most of us here have children. We have more children in this church than I can remember when. What are children like? I think that what Jesus is trying to get at here is that when we look at children, they are the prime example of dependence. Children, I have two very young ones are completely and holistically dependent on me or my wife or some other family member or adult. If my daughter who's one years old still in diapers, if I don't change her, she doesn't get a diaper change. If I don't feed her, she doesn't get fed, me or whoever's taking care of them. There's a complete dependence on almost every provision you can imagine when it comes to children. And obviously this is going to change as you get older or as they get older. And the, the dependency is basically very simple. Children are helpless and completely trusting. I'm obviously, I'm, I'm looking at the ideal. When we look at children, they're not mixed up with some of the things that we later on as adults get mixed up in. You know, we know that children as they grow, they start to get more dependent. They start to get a little bit more frustrated when you're trying to help them and that's just a part of growing up. You know, they want to be independent. They want to, you know, they want to tie their own shoes. But at the very beginning, at the very uh, beginning of their life, they just want to be taken care of. And of course, every child is different. But I think what Jesus is getting at is he's looking at the example of children and he's looking about how they look at life and that's what they expect from their mom and dad. They expect to be taken care of. They're not worried that they're dependent. There's not a pride issue, at least you know, as they are born, hopefully not, that mom and dad are taking care of them. They fully accept that they are dependent individuals on their parents. And like children are dependent on their parents, Christ desires us to completely be dependent on him. But here's the problem. This is the exact opposite of human nature. I mean, we struggle admitting that we are dependent individuals. We want the credit. We want credit that comes from ourselves. If you were to do a study on Jesus' encounters alone with the religious leaders of his day, what you'll notice is oftentimes one of the difficult things that these individuals could not accept was the fact that maybe they didn't have it all figured out. 
Maybe they need some help in understanding the, the scriptures. Maybe they had some things about God wrong. Maybe they had some things about their own righteousness that was wrong. There was a refusal to admit that maybe they didn't have everything right. And let's face it, I think that we can sympathize with them a little bit. I mean, we look at these individuals that Jesus rebukes, and I think that even me personally and all of us can sometimes get in this, this mindset of, man, I can't believe these, these idiots. Man, they, look what they're thinking. They're trying to cross Jesus. They're trying to cross God. They think they know everything. And sometimes I think maybe we forget that sometimes we even can fall into that same pit, to that same problem, especially when it's something that matters a lot to us. We want our name on the trophy. We want to have our name or many titles beside it. We have a desire to boast in what we can do, what we did do, and what we are going to do. We want that metaphorical honorable seat. And the problem is, is that the way you gain favor in this life with your fellow man is not how you gain honor and favor with God. But as Jesus demonstrated at that dinner, it is the exact opposite. Let's just think about as we kind of wrapping it up here. Let's just consider the Apostle Paul. Let's go to 1 Corinthians, the second chapter. And we know a little bit about Paul, his background. We know that the Apostle Paul was a very educated man. We know that he was a Pharisee. Uh, we know that he had, you know, had been schooled in all the different languages that were relevant to him. He was basically considered the level of PhD in his day and age, if something existed uh, like that. But in 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, 1 through 5, I really like this passage because I think sometimes it's easy to kind of go over it and not get the, the gist of, it, of what Paul is saying. He's saying in 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, verses 1 through 5, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to do anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And in my speech and in my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And I think what's so important about that is that here we see Paul. You know, we know his background, we know his credentials, but Paul, as we're going to see in the closing verse that I'm going to, I'm going to read, he thought all that was rubbish, but totally and dependently relied on the power of God over his own abilities. He could take credit for you know, things that he knew, but he believed and he wanted to demonstrate that nothing of himself could come of anything. But it was only through Christ, only through the power of God, that's all that mattered. So in closing, I just want to kind of look at some applicable principles, some things that we can apply to our life. Uh, you know, as we look at this, uh, th these passages and what Jesus has to say about humility, what the Bible has to say about humility, I want to ask us a question. What is at the source of why humans have a tendency to seek the honorable places in life in such a carnal way? Now, obviously, I think some of us could maybe get a chalkboard out or a piece of paper out. We could write several different things. We could, you know, look at one of the answers is pride. We have pride. One of the answers is greed. You know, we want things. We want, you know, the best. One of the answers is arrogance. But sometimes I think that something that might be overlooked 
is our insecurities. Does some of these things, does some of this problem actually stem from insecurities? And what do I mean by that? Insecurities. If we look at that example of Jesus, that example at that meal, all these individuals trying to rush to get the best seats, the honorable seats. Why? Why was it so important to them? Was it not? Maybe possibly because they had a lack of contentment. There was an insecurity. They felt like that's what they needed in order to get higher up in this life. They need to get one of those seats. They need to do it in any way, shape, or form that it needs to be done to get the job done. But what about Jesus? What about if we think about Jesus at that dinner? We, we know there's probably no doubt that one of the reasons that Jesus could care less about seeking an honorable seat was because of his confidence and satisfaction was rooted in God. Not in human seats, but rather in God. Not in what people thought about him. Not in the, the school that he went to, the clubs that he was involved in, the people that he was associated with. Not in the high society that he belonged to. And I believe that oftentimes, sometimes, our human nature tendencies to seek the metaphorical honorable seats in this life are rooted in our insecurities. When we, as Christians, are confident and satisfied in Christ and in who we are in Him, there's no need for jockey to jockey for positions. There's no need to impress. There's, it's so much easier when we have a full satisfaction in God to be humble. You know, being a Christian is not, in, we're not in competition with each other. We're a team. We're on the same team. We, we, we want to promote everyone. We want everyone uh, to, to do well. We want everyone to be growing in Christ. And that's what's the exact opposite in our faith, as a Christian faith, in comparison to so many other faiths as well as the way the world works. Considering that previous example of Paul, Thinking back of who he was, a Pharisee with a high education, a bright future, a career in scholarship, a position that probably could have brought him a lot of high notoriety among his countrymen. But what does he do? Instead of choosing that, he chose the road of suffering and was satisfied in it. Because his satisfaction wasn't rooted in what was behind his name, you know, letters behind his name. And obviously... That's what we have today. I'm not sure if they had that in that day. Or, or uh, you know, maybe having, uh, you know, the position of a, of, a, of a rabbi or a position in the Sanhedrin. His satisfaction came from who he was in Christ. That's what made him. I mean, think about this individual that walked on roads day in, day out, saying, I die daily. Daily, we're persecuted. And they're more satisfied than all the religious leaders combined in what they're doing. Because their satisfaction, their contentment, who they are, wasn't wrapped up in themselves and their own accomplishments, but rather in who Christ and who God was and their position in Christ. I like this quote from the 19th century Scottish preacher named James Denny. He says, No man can give at once the impression that he himself is clever and that Jesus is mighty to save. You can impress people with your cleverness, or you can impress them with Jesus, but you can't do both. And basically what he's saying is, is that no one can boast of themselves and then also talk about the mighty power of God. 
it's impossible. And obviously, what that means is, is that we are fully recognizing that everything in this life comes from God and nothing is of ourselves. In closing, I just want to say, follow Christ in the road of humility. I want to close, I'm going to do something a little different, something I don't usually do, but if you turn over to Philippians, the third chapter, I just want to close with these words with the Apostle Paul. Hopefully, some of the words that he says will kind of give you a little primer for what Matt's going to talk about in a few minutes. Uh, Philippians, the third chapter. I'm going to just read these verses and just thinking of who Paul was uh, and, and what he gave up. It says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by, by faith, that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, be conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead.